you guys pray with me before we start? <clears throat> Lord, we do thank you that though our sins are many, your grace, your mercy is more. We thank you that though we were lost in this world, you have gone after us. You have brought us to yourself. You have opened our eyes. You have given us the knowledge of Christ. You have given us desire and opportunity to be here in worship. Lord, even as we consider what people are going through right now, as they have to flee their homes, um, perhaps abandon the people that they've been with long time, we have opportunity, Lord. We have peace where we are. And we want to praise you for that, Lord. In these moments, we uh, are mindful of the things that you bless us with, Lord, that we often take for granted. We thank you for this opportunity to be here this afternoon and open your word. And I pray that as we go to this passage of Scripture, that you would... Speak to each one of us, Lord. I don't know where every heart is. I don't know what the issues they're facing, Lord, but you do. And we know that you can take the word and you can apply it to any situation. And so we ask that today you would encourage us, that you would remind us, that you would uh, confront us if there is a need for that, Lord. And most importantly, Lord, I pray that Christ would be exalted this afternoon. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm grateful for an opportunity to... Um, stand here this afternoon and bring the Word of God to you. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. This afternoon, I want to bring you a message entitled, Knowing the Unknown. Pursuit of knowledge is a characteristic of every human being. Beginning with our first days to the end of life, in one way or another, or in one form of another, each one of us is pursuing knowledge. When babies are born, they might be cute, they might be cuddly, but they're also ignorant, right? They have to grow up, and they have to grow in their knowledge and their understanding. Once you become a teenager, immediately you realize that you know everything, right? You don't need anybody's help. You don't need your parents telling you anything. Mark Twain put it best. He said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old men around. But when I got to about 21, I was astonished at how much he had learned in the last seven years. <laughs> Pursuit of knowledge is a mark of every human being. Now, when God created Adam and Eve and He placed them in the garden, He created man with ability to receive information and to process that information, and as a result of that, to grow in knowledge. Some things in life are trivial, and others are absolutely essential. Now, you will most likely survive, and I'm guessing here, if you didn't know that, for example, a cat has 32 muscles in each ear, or that a goldfish has a memory span of three seconds. Or that Greece's national anthem has 158 verses. That's true. <laughs> but scripture is very clear that there are some things that you must absolutely know. Or more specifically, there is one whom you have to know in order for your life to make sense. You see, you can go through life and you can accumulate a lot of information. You can accumulate a lot of knowledge. And then come to the end of it and still be a fool and perish and go to hell. That is absolutely possible. In the book of Hosea, God confronts the nation of Israel with these words. He says, listen to the word of the Lord, Hosea chapter 4, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness 
or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beasts of the field, and the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea. And in verse 6 he says, My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. Because they have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. God confronts them because there was no knowledge of God in the land. And specifically, He confronts the priests. Now, Acts chapter 17 is a famous chapter, and most of you are familiar. In Acts chapter 17, Paul arrives in Athens, which was the center of knowledge at that time. The people of Athens, they were sophisticated, they were knowledgeable, they were eloquent. We're told of their preoccupation in verse 21. If you look at verse 21, verse 21 says, Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And yet, as an admission of their own ignorance, they built an altar to an unknown God which gave Paul an opportunity to preach the gospel to them. Now, our world today is not much different than it was in the first century. Most people around us, they consider themselves very knowledgeable, they consider themselves sophisticated, and we as Christians, we still have the same job and the same responsibility as Paul did to proclaim Christ to these people. The question for us is, how do we do that? How do we do that? Because we're often talking about here, even in this and on Wednesday night, we're talking about reaching unbelievers with the gospel, impacting the community that is here in Folsom, or whatever we are, right? So the question for us is, how do we do that? I think if we read our Bibles, I think we can say that Paul was pretty effective at what he did, right? I mean, he established churches everywhere he has gone. I mean, the, the pattern as you read in Scripture is pretty simple. He shows up to a city, he begins to preach, he causes a riot, the church is established, he's arrested, put in prison, eventually moves on to the next city and does exactly the same thing. Every time. Somebody said Paul could have saved a lot of headache for a lot, a lot of headaches for a lot of people by just simply checking himself in the local prison when he showed up into town. That's what happened. That's how he was. And yet, this man was so effective. So what I want us to do today is I want us to walk through this text, this history that is recorded for us in Luke here in chapter 17. And I want us to just observe Paul as he is reaching out, as he's preaching the gospel to these sophisticated, smart, intellectual, and eloquent people. You think about Folsom, and we think about Folsom, you have a bunch of rich folks here living, you know, who have their money and their cars and their houses. Like, How in the world are we going to reach you with the gospel? Well, The situation was exactly the same with these people. They lived in the center of knowledge. They were smart, educated people. And yet Paul preached the gospel to them. As we consider this text, I wanted to make just three observations which made Paul an effective minister for the gospel. Three observations. The first one will be this. Paul was provoked by men's depravity. Observation number two, Paul pursued every opportunity. And observation number three, as we'll see from the text, Paul preached a clear message. Now join me as I read Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, 
His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and all the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. The day would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of of your own prophets have said, for we also are His children. Being then the children of God, we have not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by an art, the thought of man, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to man that all people everywhere should repent. Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Brother said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's begin with the first observation. Paul was provoked by man's depravity. Now, if you know the flow of the book of Acts, and if you just begin reading at Acts chapter uh, 17, verse 1, we read that in Acts chapter 17, Paul arrives in Thessalonica. He begins to preach there. He goes to a synagogue. And as he's preaching, people get converted. When people get converted, there are Jews in the city who stir up the crowd. Unbelieving Jews, they stir up a crowd. They basically cause a riot. And the church, this new church that was established in Thessalonica, they sent Paul out to Berea. He goes to Berea and he shows up there and he does exactly the same thing. 
He shows up and he starts to preach. He starts to preach, and again, we're told in Acts chapter 17, that when he comes there, again, a bunch of people believe. We have Gentiles, we have, we have the Jews who believe, we have Gentiles are converted in Berea. But we know that Satan and his minions are everywhere, right? So the Jews of Thessalonica, who stirred up the crowd in Thessalonica, they show up to Berea, and they cause another riot in Berea. So believers in Berea now, they take Paul, and they send him to Athens. Timothy and Silas, they stay behind in Berea. That's why when we come to chapter 17, verse 16, Paul is waiting for Titus and and, uh, Silas, or for Timothy and Silas, to come from Berea and to meet him in Athens. That's how he ended up in Athens. He didn't come there because he wanted to visit that city, but he came there because he was fleeing persecution. Now, as Paul is waiting there in Athens, he can't just sit around. We're told that something was going on in his heart which motivated him to act. If you look again at verse 16, it says that while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, we'll read this, his spirit was being provoked within him. What caused that? What caused that? Well, it says here, he was observing the city full of idols. As I said already, Athens was the philosophical center of the world. It was also a religious center of the world, a home to pretty much every god the pagans worship. One ancient writer noted that meeting a god in Athens was easier to meet a person. They estimated that there were 30,000 idols and statues and buildings dedicated to God in Athens. And there were were about 10,000 people in the city. Every building was dedicated to certain God. Athens was full of statues of gold, of silver, of stone. It was a magnificent place to visit. I mean, if if you love architecture, if you love beauty, I mean, this was the place to be. Not only was this sophisticated city, the people of the city were also sophisticated Now, Paul did not come there because he wanted to check out the culture of Athens. He came there because he had to flee persecution, as I mentioned. And as he walked around the city, we read that his spirit was being provoked. Now, I was thinking, if many of us showed up in that city, what would we do? I mean, we would probably walk around the city. We would check out the buildings, check out the statues, you know, take picture here and there, maybe post a few on Instagram. No. What happened to Paul? He says his spirit was being provoked. You see, Paul was able to see straight through that superficial trinkets of that city. Paul understood that behind every idol, behind every statue, behind every building were demons. Because we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, Paul says, I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Paul looked around and he didn't see beautiful buildings. He didn't see gold and silver and stone and statues. Paul saw demon worship. Paul saw a bunch of people who were lost and on their way to hell. And Paul's spirit was being provoked. Idolatry provoked Paul. What is idolatry? Simply put, idolatry is giving what belongs only to God to someone or something else. Worship belongs exclusively to God. And when you take worship and you give it to anyone else, that's idolatry. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says this, 121. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Speaking of everyone, all people in the world. They did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. He says, professing to be wise, they became fools. And here's what they did. 
they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Rather than worshiping God himself, they substituted that for a bunch of little trinkets. Corruptible pictures of men, statues of animals, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. You see, when Paul saw this idolatry, he understood that this idolatry robs God of the glory that He's due. And at the same time, it condemns people to eternal hell. And that did not sit well with Paul. You see, those are, those are the two, two problems with idolatry. That on the one hand, you're taking from God what belongs to Him. Because God created man for His own glory. And the glory belongs to God. And on the other hand, when you do that, you're condemning yourself to hell. Now you might say, listen, this was like back in the day, 2,000 years ago. But what about today? I mean, obviously you walk around Folsom, you walk around Sacramento, you don't see shrines built to all kinds of gods. But the situation is not different, right? Because people are just as idolatrous today as they were back then. We're more sophisticated. We do a lot of those things right here where no one can see, right? People just same, worship the same gods in different ways. So idolatry hasn't changed. Let me ask you a question. What provokes you? What provokes you? What causes your spirit to be stirred up? Have we, maybe as Christians, have gotten so used to this world that even when we watch real wickedness, even when we watch the things that Paul has seen, we simply don't care? We just kind of move on and it's just another day that ends with why. Maybe it's like that. I mean, perhaps we get provoked with injustices and wickedness that we see in the world. And I'll confess that last couple months or maybe a couple years have given us plenty of opportunities to get angry about things. They have given us plenty of opportunities. And you can see real wickedness. You just turn on your TV and you can see real wickedness. And we get angry and we get frustrated. But what do we do about it? Notice Paul was provoked. And this word, when he says that Paul was provoked, it means to get angry. It means to get frustrated. The same word is used in the love chapter. Remember it says, love is not provoked. That's the same word. It is used one more time in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, where it says, a sharp disagreement arose between Paul and Barnabas. That's exactly the same word. We're talking about this anger and frustration that is boiling over. And in Paul's case, Paul was provoked by the idolatry. The glory of God and the depravity of man, they motivated Paul to act. Second observation. Second observation is that Paul pursued every opportunity. Paul pursued every opportunity. Notice verse 17 is a result of verse 16. Verse 17 begins with, so. So, Paul saw the idolatry of people in that city. He was provoked by them. And what did he do? He had a few options. I mean, one, he could have said, listen, I mean, these people are just too lost. They're just too numerous. They're just too idolatrous. They're just too sophisticated. And what is one man going to do against this whole city? Or maybe he could have just kind of walked around the city and tried to destroy as many idols as he was able. That's another option. Or maybe he can, you know, gather a committee and they would uh, have a five-year project to study how to reach the people in Athens. Maybe he could do that. What did he do? 
Look at verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. What did he do? Well, first option is like, okay, what can I do now? Well, it's Saturday morning. There are Jews in the city. Paul is a Jew. So Paul says, hey, I'm going to go and first opportunity, I'm going to go to a synagogue. He goes to a synagogue, and in the synagogue there are Jews, and there are God-fearing Gentiles who show up there on Saturday morning. So he goes there because he sees an opportunity there. He goes there and he begins to reason with them. He begins to proclaim Christ to them. He begins to preach about resurrection. Well, synagogue, they meet only on Saturday morning, right? So what do you do the rest of the time? Well, the rest of the time it says here that what did he do? He went to a marketplace. Every other day, marketplace is open. So what did he do? He went to a marketplace, and he would speak to anyone who happened to be present there. Notice Paul doesn't just sit there and says, Lord, you know what? I just want you to give me an opportunity to go and, you know, preach the gospel and have this big gospel ministry. No, he's taking advantage of the opportunities that he has. Synagogue, he goes on Saturday. Every other day, he goes to a marketplace and he just speaks to anybody who would listen. And he preaches Christ and he preaches resurrection. Now, as he's preaching the gospel, we're told here in verse 18 that he runs into two groups of people. Two groups of people. There are Epicureans here, and there are Stoics. Two philosophies, or dominant philosophies, that were present there. Epicureans. Followers of Epicurus, who was a Greek philosopher who lived in the 4th and 3rd century. This guy taught that the chief purpose of man is to pursue pleasure and to avoid pain. That was his ideology. He believed in a bunch of gods, but he denied that the gods created the world. He taught that, yeah, gods existed, but, you know, they were so distant, they were so far away, they did not care about the individual affairs of human life. There is no afterlife, so just live your life. And you can imagine that this kind of philosophy leads to indulgence, because if there is no afterlife, if you die and that's the end of you, then, you know, make most of your life right now. Now, you might think that this is an old heresy. But you know what? People believe that today. There are people, you don't have to preach the gospel long enough, and you will run into somebody who will tell you that, listen, when you die, it's all over. You die, you close your eyes, you decompose, and that's the end of you. So make much of life. There are also Stoics there, also followers of another teacher from the 4th century. And Stoicism was pantheistic, which means that they believed in multiple gods, but they believed or they held that the universe was this vast quasi-rational being with intelligence and will. So everything is God, basically. They taught that the greatest virtue in life is self-mastery. Because if everything is God, everything is going in its own course, and you just need to find your own place in this vast system, and you need to fulfill your own role. They believed that You need to suppress your passions and your affections. They need to be restrained. And the happiest state will be when you feel absolutely nothing. That's why they focus so much on discipline. You know, they say, oh, he's a stoic, right? I can't feel pain and I can't feel happiness. I'm just, I just am. You have to live in harmony with nature. Because if God is in everything, then you know what? You just have to live in harmony with the trees. I mean, ancient tree huggers, you could say. You see, they were very strict in their practices, and they were very proud of their own righteousness. Now, when these guys heard Paul preach, they were not very impressed. Because verse 18 says, says, What would this idle babbler wish to say? 
Another said, he seems to be proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Idle babbler. Literally, it's a seed picker. One commentator explains it this way. He says, the, the word evokes image of a bird picking indiscriminately at seeds in the barnyard. It refers to someone who picked up scraps of ideas here and there and passed them off as profundity with no depths of understanding at all. They listen to Paul and like, man, what kind of nonsense is that? They found it strange. Listen, I find it strange that people who believe in a bunch of strange gods found Paul's preaching to be strange. Right? What kind of strange ideas are these? And notice some other thoughts that he's preaching other gods. Because they said here, because he was, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Notice plural. And then he explains why. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Well, Jesus is obviously, right? But resurrection, the word for resurrection is anastasis. This is where we get the name Anastasia. So perhaps in their pagan mind, they thought like, man, this guy shows up and he preaches some other new gods here. You have this male god Jesus and his consort, resurrection or anastasis. So they're probably thinking like, man, what kind of gods are these? We have a lot of idols here. We have a lot of you know altars for different gods. We don't know who these guys are. And there was confusion. And because there was confusion, they're like, hey, we want to hear this guy. Remember, Athenians, they love to hear new things. So you're preaching us to us new gods, so tell us about it. And you see their curiosity and the providence of God, they lead Paul to Areopagus. Now, Areopagus was a court of the city. It was so named for the hill on which they once met. This is the place that we know as Mars Hill. That's what Romans called it, Mars Hill. Now, Paul was not on trial in this court, but his teaching certainly was. They wanted to hear, they wanted to see what Paul taught. Well, perhaps this thing, you know, passes our test and we'll have to build a few more idols in the city for these other gods that he's preaching. Notice the progression here, how this works. First, Paul's spirit is provoked. Then he begins to search for opportunities. Then he goes to a synagogue. Then he goes to marketplace and he talks to anybody who would listen. And then he gets to the grand stage to preach Christ. To these sophisticated people in this court of the city on Mars Hill. He took advantage of the opportunities that he had. The little opportunities. A marketplace. A random dude that you will never meet again. And Paul took advantage of that. And that gave him an opportunity and provided a wider door for him to preach the gospel. Now what about us? Do you take advantage of the opportunities that God gives to you? Do I? Do we look for opportunities as Paul did in order to make much of Christ, in order to proclaim Christ? Notice, any opportunity, any avenue that he had in order to make much of Christ and to proclaim Christ, Paul took. And because his spirit was provoked by the idolatry of man, he wanted to bring Christ to them because he saw that the solution to their idolatry, solution to their state of being lost, is the gospel. He needs to preach the gospel and he took advantage of every opportunity. So first, he was provoked by their idolatry. Second, he took opportunity, every opportunity to proclaim Christ. And the third thing that we see in this text here, and this will take the bulk of our time, is that Paul preached a clear message. Paul preached a clear message. Verses 22, basically through the end of the chapter, or through verse 31, is Paul's message. This is what Paul preached. This is what he preached in the synagogue. This is what he preached to uh, people in the marketplace. And this is the message that he preached on Mars Hill. Now just for the sake of clarity, I want us to break it into three parts. Because that's what Paul does here. 
In verses 22 and 23, first of all, Paul makes an observation. He makes an observation. In verses 24 through 29, Paul provides an explanation, and then he concludes his message with a declaration in verses 30 and 31. So an observation, an explanation, and a declaration. Let's begin with an observation. Look at verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. Notice how Paul begins. Paul begins by establishing a common ground with his audience. Notice he's not compromising anything. He just makes an observation and he just affirms reality. He says, I just want to affirm that first of all, you guys are very, very religious. Notice that being religious is not a solution. Right? Because you couldn't have been more religious than the Athenians. And at the same time, you couldn't have been more lost than the Athenians are. And so Paul begins with the first one. He says, listen... I observed that you are very, very religious. And as I was walking around and observing all your altars, I found this one, to an unknown God. Now, a few explanations have been offered as to why they would build such an altar to an unknown God. you got to remember that pagan religion, religions are not monotheistic, right? They don't believe in one God. They believed in many gods, plurality of gods. If you read ancient mythology, you will find out that they had gods for everything, right? They had gods of God of love, God, God of wines, harvest, storm, sun, moon, anything you can think of, they had a god for it. Now we have to remember that pagan mindset was permeated and it was driven by fear. By fear. You have to appease deity. Because if you do not appease deity, bad things will happen to you and yours. I mean, how else do you motivate a mother to take her child and to throw him into fire to to sacrifice to a pagan god? How else do you do that? If you're a pagan, you're afraid because there are so many of these gods all around and they're all out to get me. So I have to build all these altars there so that I can appease them in some way and say, okay, you know what, we can let this guy go. And after you build 30,000 altars, you're like, but what if there's one more? What if there's another one? And he gets angry. So what do you do? You built an altar to an unknown God. Because you want to appease them just to make sure that you got all your bases covered. That's their ideology. That's their understanding that these gods are angry, these gods are mean, and we have to somehow appease them in some way. Paul walks around and he sees this altar to an unknown God. He says, man, this is a great opportunity for me to preach Christ to them. This is an opportunity for me to introduce them to an unknown God. And I bet he had their attention. Why? Because Athenians love to hear something new. And he says, by the way, guys, you guys just confess that there is God that you don't know. I know him, so I'm going to tell you about him. Like, okay, tell us about him. So he provides an explanation. He provides an explanation beginning in verse 24. And when he provides this explanation, this explanation consists of four truths about one true God. Four things Paul highlights about God to these pagans. One true God. Truth number one. God was not created, but is the creator. That's where Paul begins. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. 
These people worshipped the creation of their own hands. And Paul begins to introduce them to the creator who made all things. The God who made the world. Notice Paul does not say, start by saying, guys, you know, there is God. No, he assumes that as a fact. In fact, Bible never tries to prove the existence of God. It assumes it as fact. You open the Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning was God. Is that what it says? No. In the beginning, God created. It is assumed as a fact that there is God. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So Bible always assumes that there is God and never tries to prove the existence of God. You read through your Bible from Genesis to Revelation and God is always worshipped as the Creator. A few verses, Psalm 146 verse 5. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Isaiah 40, 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Jeremiah 32, 17. O Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. When Paul begins to preach this, this idea that there is the creator of everything was vehemently denied by Paul's audience. Epicureans believed that the matter was eternal and therefore had no creator. Stoics believed that everything was part of God. And if everything was part of, was part of God, then God wouldn't have created him, himself. And Paul shows up here and he says, listen, God created heavens and earth. Notice, Paul starts here because if you deny this truth, you have effectively denied the entire Bible. If you deny this fact, you have denied the entire Bible. Because if God is not the creator, then you are not accountable to Him. But if He is, then you absolutely are. You see, if you are not accountable to God, then live your life however you want. Then do whatever you want with your life. Because at the end of it, you're not going to have to face Him and give an account for your life. Now, you don't have to preach the gospel for too long, and you will run into people who deny the existence of God, who deny the Creator. And you deny the existence of God for this reason. Because you deny God, you deny accountability. If there is no accountability, you're absolutely free to live however you want. But notice what Paul does here. He says here, does God... The God who made the world and all things in it. What's the next phrase? Since He is Lord of heaven and earth. Notice he connects the fact that because He is the Creator, He is Lord. If He is Lord, He is owner of everything. He is master of everything. He owns you. That's what he's saying. There is accountability because He made you. He is your Lord. Listen, we're not dealing with some petulant tyrant in heaven who just wants to lash out at you and knock you out. That's not what the description is here. No, God is the creator who's in control of all things and he's the Lord of heaven and earth. The God that I am preaching to you is much grander than just some stupid statue that you have over there. In Isaiah chapter 66, listen to God. It says, this is the Lord. 
Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. I mean, just think about that picture for a moment. I mean, we think earth is just like this massive earth, so big. For us to cross the world, you know, we have to fly for so many hours. It's just so big. God says, you know, earth, my little footstool, just put my feet down on it. That's what he's saying. He says, I'm so big, I'm so grand, you can't compare me to anybody. Where is the house that you would build for me? And where is the place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things come into being, declares the Lord. I'm just so grand, I'm just so big, I'm just so massive. You can't even imagine a place, you can't put me in a box. You can't reduce me to an idol. You can't reduce me to a statue. So he's saying. And notice Paul begins here, and he's talking to pagans. Pagans who, they're not reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? He's not talking to Jews, he's talking to a bunch of pagans. And he begins where God begins. God begins in Genesis chapter 1, and that's where Paul begins. Now you listen to even Christians today. And there's a bunch of Christians who are kind of wishy-washy on Genesis 1 and 2. Well, maybe God, you know, used evolution to create the world. I mean, maybe, maybe the earth is millions and millions of years old. How about no? How about no? God made the world in six literal 24-hour days, and He made everything out of nothing. And because He made everything out of nothing, He is Lord of all. It's either true or it's not true. Or just what MacArthur says, listen, when do you kick in? Like Genesis 3? Maybe Genesis 11? Maybe, maybe New Testament? Where do you kick in if you deny that? But you see, if you deny Genesis 1, you have effectively denied the whole Bible. Paul begins and he says, listen, I'll tell you all pagans. You're worshiping 30,000 idols. There's one God. And this one, God, is not made by you. Is not made by any hand. It is, he is the maker and he's the creator of all things. Truth number one. God was not created, but is the creator. Truth number two. God does not need you, but you need God. God does not need you. Verse 25. Nor does he serve by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Do you realize that God doesn't need you? And God doesn't need anything from us? Absolutely nothing. I mean, do you think you're doing God a favor by going to church on Sunday? Maybe reading your Bible? Or doing some good things for other people? Paul says, God does not need to be served by human hands. Listen to this quote from Stephen Cole. He says, intellectuals need to be humbled by realizing that they have nothing, nothing to offer God. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He has gotten along just fine all these centuries without their astute intellect. And he will do just fine in the centuries to come, whether they offer him their service or not. Whether you give anything to God or not give anything to Him, you're not adding anything to Him and you're not subtracting anything from Him. That's that's what Paul is saying. God throughout the, the Bible is pretty explicit about this. Just one verse. In one passage, Psalm 50, verse 9, God says, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goat out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. 
In fact, anything that you can offer to God is already His. So He does not need you, and He doesn't need anything from you. And that's the first thing that Paul says to him. Because in the pagan mindset, when you have these petulant gods who are like, man, you better satisfy me, or I'm going to knock you out. And they're thinking like, i got to bring this guy's sacrifice, and i got to offer this to him, or he's going to be angry with me. And also, listen, God does not need you, and God does not need anything from you. Now, just as a footnote here, we can observe that God did not create the world and everything in it because He was lacking something. That's not why He made Him. It wasn't like, man, God, God just needed to love somebody. Then He made you. No. No. God was perfectly satisfied in Trinity for all eternity past before He made the world. There was perfect satisfaction. God was not lacking anything. You see, creation was made in order to display the glory of God. In no way to add to God. I mean, we get things and we buy things because we lack something. And in order for me to be fulfilled, I need this and I need that and I need the other. That's not so for God. God says, listen, He was in perfect harmony within Trinity before anything was made. But if God doesn't need anything from you, you need everything from God. That's what Paul is saying. God does not need anything from you, but you absolutely depend on Him. He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. What could be more basic than breath? I mean, your very breath is dependent on God Himself. Breath. You can't live without it. Vody Bachelman one of his sermons, he says, you know, you should ask yourself this question is, how dare I steal God's air? Because the last breath I took, I borrowed it from God. And I'm never going to give it back to Him. And when you borrow something and never give it back, you're stealing. You're stealing God's air. Notice he says here, if God just turns off the air, you're done. God gives to all things breath. Without breath, you can't live. And notice, it's not just God gives you life, God sustains your breath. But notice, God gives to all people all things. In your pagan mind, you're thinking like, I need to give to this God something so that He doesn't lash out at me. And Paul says, listen, true God gives all people all things. That's pretty inclusive, right? Notice the goodness of God. Notice, it's not a petulant tyrant in the sky who's ready to whack you for, you know, your misstep. No, he says, this God, it's the goodness of God on display. God gives to all people all things. The only reason you have what you have is because God in His goodness has chose to give that to you. It's the goodness of God. He's talking to pagans. Pagans. Now, these Greeks have no excuse. Because even verse 28 says that your own poets have made a note of that. He says, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are all his children. Truth number one, God was not created, but is the creator. Truth number two, God does not need you, but you need him. Truth number three, God is involved in the lives of man. You see, Epicureans who were listening to Paul at that time, they believed that gods existed, but they were distant and they were not involved 
in the lives of men. And Paul destroys that in verse 26. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Notice, first of all, all men are created by God and are descendants of one man, Adam. There's only one race, human race, right? Regardless of your color, regardless of your station in life, you are neither superior to anyone nor inferior to anyone. God created all men in His own image. You see, these Greeks, they thought that they were sophisticated. They were the smartest, they were the brightest, and everyone else were barbarians around them, second-class citizens. And Paul says, no, let me tell you something. God, that I'm preaching to you, He made all men, and you all have one father. Adam. There's one race, there's human race, and you all come from Adam. Just save you guys a bunch of money. You don't have to go to Ancestry.com and find out where you came from. Just told you that. (laughs) Not only were you created by God, but notice how intimately involved God is in His creation. Notice He says, He having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That's pretty involved, I would say. Right? Notice he says, this God that I'm preaching to you, he determined when you would be born, and he determined where you would live. God did that. God is intimately involved in his creation. There is no deism in the Bible. God is not this divine clockmaker who just made the clock, he wound it, wound it up, and he says, okay, you can run on your own. No, notice he says, he is just so intimately involved with his creation. He determines when the baby is born, he determines where the baby lives, and he determines when the person dies because he turns off the air. He's intimately involved in his creation. Why are you here in America in 2022? Why are you in Folsom? Why are you here right now? Because there's God in heaven who runs all things, and he's sovereignly involved in his creation. Truth number four, God deserves the worship of man. Why did God place you in Folsom in 2022? Look at verse 27. That they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. Since God is the Creator, and He is the Sustainer, and He is intimately involved in every detail of your life, this God that I'm preaching to you deserves to be worshipped. Knowledge of God must be the pursuit of your life. Now we have to be careful to make sure we understand what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that pagans, apart from the grace of God, can somehow find God. No, he says that men are created in the image of God, and they are entirely dependent on God. And therefore the only logical conclusion would be that they would seek God. Now, you can't find God unless God finds you. These words here, he says, so they would grope for Him, if perhaps they might find Him. They're in optative mood, which expresses a wish. Like, God desires that He placed man in this world, and He desires that man would find God. But we know the state of men. Men are not seeking for God. They can't find God, but God must find them. But notice, because God made you. 
Because God placed you and God has put you on this universe, in this place right now, where you live, and your goal in life, so that you would seek God. Now notice these Gentiles that he's speaking to, they had access to general revelation. All men have access to general revelation. What is general revelation? General revelation is creation. Because in Romans chapter 1 and 2, Paul explains general revelation. He says there's creation and there's conscience. He says you, just by observing, by opening your eyes, opening your eyes and looking at all the things that God has made, you will conclude that there must be God. And you must search for Him. He said God has put conscience. Conscience that tells you what is right and wrong before it is reprogrammed. And he says that man ought to search for God. Now, regarding the nature of man, we know that unbelievers, they walk in darkness, they are darkness, they love darkness, and they hate light. What do you imagine when you hear the word grope for God? Grope, it's like, you know, you have a blind person who's in the dark room, and he's trying to look for an escape. He's trying to look for a door. So he's touching everything to see what will move so that he can get out. And that's the idea here. He says, God created man. And in their state, when they realize that they completely are dependent on God, they ought to look for every opportunity and grow. If perhaps somehow, if perhaps some way, they might find him. That's the explanation that he gives. That's the truth that you need to do. That, that, that is what you need to do. This is the God that I am preaching to you. And once he explains to them, he concludes his sermon with a declaration. Look at verse 30. Therefore, therefore, that's a climax. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Notice he doesn't say, guys... I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you guys listening to me. I want you to go home and I want you to think about a few things tonight. (laughs) That's not what he says. He says, therefore, now. I love how straightforward Paul is in this sermon. I mean, if this is not straightforward preaching, I don't know what is. God is now declaring to man that all people everywhere should repent. I mean, that is like straightforward. First, who? God. God, this is not your mom, this is not your friend, this is not a preacher, this is not even Paul. No, he said, you know who's speaking to you right now? God. Therefore, God. When? Now. Not when you go home and think about it. No, it's not tonight. No, Paul understood that the only thing you have is now. You have no control over your past because you can't change it. And you have no control over your future because you don't know if you have a future. The only thing you have is now. God is now declaring. Oh, God is now. Well, to whom? Look at the next phrase. To all men everywhere. That's pretty inclusive, right? It's not just few individuals with E in the back for the elect. No, God is now declaring to all men everywhere. Now, all means all here, right? You don't need to know Greek for that one. To do what? All men everywhere to repent. To repent. That's the question. Have you in your life had a moment when you realized that 
you have sinned against an infinitely holy God. And if He sends you to hell, He will be absolutely just in doing so. Do you believe that God loved you so much that He took His only Son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world, lived a perfect life, never sinned once, and then when He hung on the cross, God took your sins, He placed them upon Christ, and then the Father poured His wrath upon Christ to punish Him for the sins that you have done. He died the death that you deserve to die, and He was in the tomb for three days, and then three days later, He walked out of that tomb. When He walked out of that tomb, He proved that the sacrifice that He offered to God, the payment that He offered to God was accepted by the Father. He is Lord of all, and He is going to be judge of all. Have you repented of your sins, which means that you agree with God of His assessment of your sins. When you say, God, yes, what I have done is what you call sin. And you confess that, and you place your faith in Christ, and then God guarantees you eternal life. Not because you're a good person, not because you've done anything right in your own life, but because Jesus Christ has paid his, your way into heaven. That's the gospel. That's the message. Paul says, God is now declaring to all people everywhere to repent, to acknowledge that you have sinned against an infinitely holy God, that you deserve hell. And that Jesus Christ has come and He bought you a ticket into heaven by sacrificing Himself. And you place your faith completely in His work. And you say, you know what? If I'm going to get to heaven, it's going to be for one reason and one reason only. Because Jesus paid my way into heaven. Repentance is turning from your sins. And faith is trusting in Christ. Looking to Christ because He is the substitute who paid your way into heaven. That is what Paul is saying. God, that's what God is commanding every single person to come to their senses and repent. Now notice, Paul answers why you should repent. Why should you repent? Look at verse 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Somebody might say, listen, I mean, why are you so uptight about this, Paul? I mean, we're talking about here judgment, like repentance, hell. I mean, can we just like love people? I mean, be kind to people. I mean, just relax a bit. See, Paul realized that men are not guaranteed tomorrow. You see, all you have is now. Now, that's why he says God is now commanding you. And if you don't repent now, and you leave this life without repenting, then the same Lord who could be your Savior will be your judge. Notice the argument that Paul makes here to these pagans. His argument hangs on the resurrection of Christ. Because he says here, God the Father has furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Listen, this is a question that every unbeliever needs to answer. Did Jesus walk out of his tomb on the third day or not? That's the the question you have to answer. I don't care what you believe. I don't care to what religion you subscribe. It doesn't matter. Just the simple question. Did Jesus walk out of the tomb three days later? If the answer is no, then you can take your Bibles. You can throw them in the garbage can right there on the way out. And you go home and party as hard as you can. Because you're going to die, and that's the end of it. And that's not my suggestion, that's Paul's suggestion. 
Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul said that. Don't believe a word of this. If Jesus did not walk out of that tomb, you're wasting your time. Listen, it's Sunday, it's 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and you're sitting here. You're wasting your life. Go party. That's what he's saying. But, but if the answer to that question is yes, listen, that changes the whole ballgame. If Jesus walked out of that tomb three days later, and he's now alive, listen, you're going to face him. You're going to face him because he says... His resurrection is a proof that He's going to be the judge. It is the proof that the sacrifice that He has offered on the cross was accepted, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that Jesus will judge the world. Because He walked out of that tomb, and He's alive today. Now you would think that, I mean, after a message like this from Paul, everybody were just like on their faces in dust and ashes. Look at the response. There are actually three responses in the sermon. Verse 32 says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, first response, some began to sneer. <coughs> what a fool. Isn't that what Paul says? That the gospel is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing. Paul, you believe that? You preach that? Man, you're a fool. And you see, gospel would sound like foolishness to you unless God opens your mind to see the glory of Christ. Because you're going to say, listen, a guy 2,000 years years ago dying on the cross will get me to heaven? Give me a break. It's foolishness unless God opens your eye. And here, we have a bunch of people here. They begin to make fun of Paul. Oh, resurrection of the dead. I mean, you got here pagans, right? They don't believe in resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in life after death. He says, oh, Jesus rose from the dead. Uh Uh-huh. Tell me about it. Some began to sneer. Notice the second response. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. This is also rejection of the gospel. Because Paul says, God is commanding now all people everywhere to repent. Not sometimes later. And you know, you can preach the gospel to people and they're like, no, sounds really good. You know, let, let's go home and think about this. This is a rejection of the gospel. This is what happened to Paul. But there was a third group. It said, some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. You see, that's why we preach the gospel. You don't know how people will respond. And every time there will be these people in the crowd or to people that you preach, some will laugh at you. Others will say, listen, this is very interesting. You know, I haven't thought about it, but let me go home and think about it. Or they'll just say that for you to get away from them, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll listen to you next time. And then he says, there are some who will believe. And who believed? Dionysius the Areopagite, one of the judges. One of the judges believed the message. And then just some woman, Demarius, and others also. Listen, God has his people among the judges and among the street sweepers. Right? Yes, these people everywhere. And Paul preaches this message indiscriminately to all people. And why did they believe? Because God opens their minds, God opens their hearts, and they respond to the message of the gospel. That's what Paul did. That's what Paul was effective in his ministry. Now what about us today? Let me go back to our first point. Let me ask you, what provokes you today? What provokes you? 
Does the wickedness of people provoke you? I mean, how do you respond when you see evil on display? What's going on in your heart? I mean, a few weeks ago, you just turn on your news and you watch what's going on in Canada. Right? You're looking at it and you have a bunch of these people who are drunk on their power, abusing their God-given authority. Wickedness. This week, you know, you got Ukraine. And regardless on which side you are, you could look at it and you have villains in the story. Oh, this guy is definite villain. Now ask yourself, what would you want God to do to that villain? Or what did you want to do to that villain as you watched that? We were recently talking at home. I was just thinking, like, you know, I said something like, you know, if I was God, a lot of wicked people would die a lot sooner. But then I wouldn't be around either, by that logic. Right? You see, when Paul saw wickedness of people, his response wasn't like, Lord, let's call down fire from heaven and just like, look at this. Let's wipe them all out. Now what do you do? His response was to preach Christ to them. And to my shame, that's not how I often think. These people are too lost and these people deserve to get what they will get. Paul was provoked by wickedness. He was moved to proclaim Christ to them. Because he knew that the only way they can escape from the snare of the devil that they were caught in is by God and His grace reaching out to them and taking them out of that snare. That's why he wanted to preach the gospel to them. See, it's one thing to be bothered by something, but it's another thing to do something about it. I mean, in your own life, you could, you could do the same thing. Paul could have been provoked by this and bothered by this, but he'd be like, you know what, I'm just waiting for these two guys to show up and I'm getting out of here. No. He was moved to action. He began to look for opportunities. He began to say, okay, what can I do? How can I change the situation? How can I, can contrib- how can I contribute to this? How can I make much of Christ? He sought opportunities and he capitalized on them. You see, we, cannot, we should not be only bothered by what we see in this world, but we should look for opportunities like, what can I do to change the situation? In what way can God use me in order to reach that person or to do whatever? How can I be of service? Because that's how Paul thought. And because he thought that way, he had a wider door to preach the gospel. I mean, many people want to be Billy Graham, right? Or go to on big stages and preach the gospel to a lot of people. And we can't preach the gospel to the guy next door, right? Take advantage of the opportunities that God gives. Third, let me ask you. Can you clearly articulate the gospel? You see, Paul preached a clear message. There is God. He is the Creator and Lord of all things. He is absolutely holy, and you've sinned against Him. Christ has come in order to provide redemption, and you need to repent and believe and be saved. Can you clearly articulate the gospel? That's why I'm telling you hammers of your testimonies, right? Because that's how you're going to reach the world. That's how you're going to be effective, because you're going to proclaim Christ, and when you proclaim Christ... Some will laugh at you. Others will dismiss you and say, we'll listen to you other times. But there will be few of those who say, hey, I want that. I want to believe. I want to follow that. 
Just like in Paul's case. So Paul did. And he did that everywhere he went. And that's why he was so effective. Because he continually proclaimed Christ. May God help us to follow in his steps as we make much of Christ by proclaiming the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come and we humbly ask that you would take us and grant us those opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Give us courage to speak boldly. And we pray that you would save. We pray that even in this church here, that it would be filled with people from the outside who are still in darkness and who would hear the gospel and believe. We know that it is our job to speak and it is your job to save. Help us to speak and we ask you to save. In Christ's name, amen.